Welcome to 100 Centuries, Episode 9. I'm Connie B. Dowell, and unfortunately, Stephen B. Dowell could not be here today. Um, This is actually a re-record of an episode that we both did together that unfortunately some tech issues made the recording unusable, Um, but I'm re-recording today with everything going on. Unfortunately, we just couldn't get both of us, you know, together at the same time with the energy to record. But without his invaluable questioning during the first recording, we wouldn't have the same content that we do today. So Stephen is here in spirit. His input is here, even though he himself is not here. And today, um, I'm going to spotlight two historical fiction verse novels for a middle grade audience. Um, And to start with, let's answer the question of what is a verse novel? And a verse novel is a novel written as a series of poems. So they are narrative poetry. It's not just a, it's not just a group of collective poetries. It's narrative poems that together tell a story in a novel structure. Um, And that makes it different from both poetry collections, which might be themed, but wouldn't necessarily tell a story, and from epic poetry, which tells a story in verse, but isn't necessarily connected like modern poetry, collected into poems like modern poetry is today, and, and which also doesn't necessarily follow the plot structure of a modern novel. So those are the elements of a verse novel. One, it's in verse. Two, it's collected into individual poems. Uh, three, it's a no- modern novel structure. So that's what a verse novel is. And the other bits of definition that I should probably do before diving too far into this subject is what is a middle grade audience? Um, those who aren't familiar with publishing terminology might be hazarding some guesses. A middle grade audience is usually defined as ages 8 to 12. So those later elementary through earlier middle school years. Now, to preface this episode, this isn't a le- this isn't going to be a lesson geared at middle graders. You know, I don't think while we certainly welcome middle grade listeners, I don't think that's where our podcast has been geared. You know, we've kind of geared ourselves towards a od- audience of adults and teens. And so we're going to stick with that for today. So this isn't a lesson for middle graders, but it's a spotlight on these resources for adults and teens who work with kids or who themselves are kids at heart because a good book is a good book no matter how old you are. And today we have two very excellent books. One is called May Be by Caroline Star Rose and the other is called Inside Out and Back Again by Tang Halai. And I apologize in advance if I didn't quite get the name pronounced correctly. And I also apologize for um, any other future mispronunciations of Vietnamese words. I'm doing my best. And Tang Ha Lai actually has a pronunciation guide for her name that we link to in the show notes for this episode. 
So you can hear her pronounce it herself and a little bit about her name and a little bit about um, the history behind why she spells it the way she does. So these two novels um, were chosen not only because they were my first introduction to verse novels as a form, but also because they've kind of got some similar themes. They've got definitely a theme of resilience. They present interesting, very personal moments, um, historical moments in a personal way and present their main characters as extremely resilient and adaptive people. And they also have a connecting theme of struggles with language, though those types of struggles are very different as you will see. So what are these verse novels? Um, so the first one, I'm gonna start with the earliest period in time, and that is Maybe by Caroline Starr Rose. And this novel is about a young girl of about 12, May, who is sent away from her family to go and work on a farm for a few months to provide some income for her family and also so that they don't have one more mouth to feed. So she's being sent off to help out her family, but she's also being sent off to live with strangers she's never met, and it's very intimidating. And this novel takes place in about 1870s Kansas. Um, so they're out on the prairie in a sod house. So the story sets up um, May at home getting ready to leave. She goes to the Saudi and meets the Oblingers, um, the family that she's working for, um, a husband and wife, no children. And they don't seem to get on very well, but she's doing her best to make this work. Then one day, the wife leaves and leaves a note behind. She's run off. The husband sees this and he runs off after her. And then May is, is left alone and she's managing the house. And she waits, and she waits, and she waits, and they don't come back. And so she's out there alone, by herself, stranded, until around Christmas when her father is coming to get her. Um, she's, she's actually only 15 miles from home, but she doesn't know the way. There are no roads, and it's unfamiliar territory to her. So she is alone. Winter is approaching, and she's just trying to survive. Um, and that is the main external plot of the story, is her story of survival and a determination to make it home, to, to get to Christmas somehow. And the, the other layer of this story is May's struggle with dyslexia, which was unknown in 1870s Kansas. Um, not that it didn't occur, but that no one knew what this was as a disease. And so people just kind of thought 
that someone with dyslexia was, for whatever reason, incapable of learning or not trying hard enough. And so May struggles with it throughout the book. She brings her reader with her. You know, she really misses, she doesn't miss being in school because of the struggles she had with teasing from other children, with um, with her teacher getting on to her for something that she really couldn't control. But she does desperately want to learn and want to read. And part of her big disappointment at having to go and work at the Oblingers is that she wouldn't be in school anymore and would fall even further behind. So as she's out there struggling to survive, she's also trying to teach herself to read better with varying degrees of success and varying um, degrees of confidence throughout the book. Now, some of the fun, interesting points um, in this book that are good talking points for, say, a class or a book club are life in a sod house, which was very dirty and very wet. Uh, other interesting talking points include the, the kinds of chores that you, you see May do throughout the book. And after the Oblingers leave, she's really, you know, she she herself was mostly a dem doing domestic service. So she was kind of a maid and running the household. And she didn't really trim, tend the crops before they left. And after they leave, she again doesn't really have a motivation to try and, and make the farm work. But she's just making things... So this, we really like to see her doing the bare minimum of chores to make herself work, to make her survival work. Um, so you see her, you know, picking beans, getting what she can out of the garden. You see the kinds of stores that she has left for her. She, you see her making coffee, keeping herself warm, keeping, you know, the house as dry and neat as she can. And you see what she, she ate, you know. Very few 12-year-olds today will make coffee, a nice strong pot of coffee for themselves for breakfast, but May does. You see May making biscuits. Um, she has an apple barrel that gets lower and lower and lower as the story progresses, and she has a certain number of canned goods that she rations out for herself, including one particular can of fancy peaches that she saves for you know, a very special or desperate moment. So those are all interesting talking points. Um, it's also a good talking point, as I mentioned earlier, to discuss dyslexia and the struggles that, that May encounters, including the fact that the people with dyslexia, you know, can learn. She, she, Long, even when during her low moments when she's having trouble keep you know when she's having trouble making words make any sense she still kind of mentally goes over the lessons that she's heard read to her or spoken to her she also uses a number of coping techniques that people with dyslexia do use and find effective for instance she reads along with someone else, or she holds objects in her hand, and that helps her read more smoothly. Um, so 
to give you guys an idea of life in the sod house. I'm going to read a couple of the poems from Maybe. All right, so this is the 29th poem in Maybe. She's already at the sod house um, with Mrs. Oblinger, who is clearly not very happy um, with her life there. And there may has lots of things to complain about Mrs. Oblinger, that she's not very friendly. She's not really helping around the house and may even wonders how she could have survived before May came to do all the chores. Um, but this particular poem offers a nice early glimpse of what the sod house looked like, which uh, May describes as not very nice because she had she herself grew up in a sod house, but her family had been there for some time and had time to make it look nice. And Mr. Oblinger's soddy is maybe not as sturdily constructed and he hasn't had as much time on the prairie, isn't as experienced. So you get a glimpse of the soddy and you get a glimpse of Mrs. Oblinger's particular situation. It's wet when Mr. Oblinger leaves. Already there are patches where the muslin ceiling drips. I have cleared the breakfast table and washed up. There is nothing more to keep me busy. Mrs. Oblinger sits in her rocker, lights a candle to bring sense to the dark. I wonder if the same summer storm keeps Hiram and Pa inside. I sit down at the table, start to mend a shirt. I was wrong in trying this, Mrs. Oblinger says. But his letter was so kind, I didn't think through prairie living. She rocks. If my brother hadn't shown him my photograph, I wouldn't be stuck here. I fiddle with a button and thread. She stops the chair. Her voice is louder. I'm not one of those mail-order brides, if that's what you're thinking. I lift my eyes from my sewing. No, ma'am, I say. She rocks again. The quiet out here is the worst part. Thunders as a storm the way it hounds you. Inside. Outside. Nighttime. Day. I shift to miss a leaking patch forming overhead, hoping she doesn't expect me to talk. Because what can I say? The prairie's hard on some, but it's home to me. And Mr. Oblinger has tried. I hate this place, she whispers. Before I think better, I say, he's left a shade tree out front. He's plastered the walls, and he's putting in a proper floor. What'd you say? Does she even remember I'm here? Mr. Oblinger's a good man, I try again. He wants to make this home for you. She stands over me now. You think plaster makes a difference in this place? Look at this. She holds out her mud cake skirt. It's filthy in here. The ceiling leaks. Sometimes snakes get through. The cool sods where they like to nest. They help with mice, I offer. She glares. I want to know how old she is. Four years, maybe five, ahead of me. I want her to know she'll learn to make a home. When it's wet outside and our roof leaks, Ma and I crawl under the table and wait for the storm to pass. She glares again, but slowly lowers herself to the dry earth. I settle next to her. 
So with the language and imagery of this poem, I think it's time to maybe leave maybe and appreciate all that Inside Out and Back Again has to offer, which is a very different story and a very different time. So Inside Out and Back Again by Tang Lai um, is based on Lai's own experiences. So some of this is autobiographical and some of this is fictional, um, but it's based on her own experiences as a child during the fall of Saigon and her time in refugee camps and later immigration to Alabama. So she, you get to see a glimpse of life in Vietnam, life on the boat escaping, life in the refugee camps, and then life in Alabama adjusting to a totally new culture and people who aren't always super friendly. So it's a really a, a transition between two drastically different worlds. So Ha, the heroine of the story, starts her, her life in, it starts with her life in Saigon, which is by turns both frightening because war is moving closer and closer to her and she fears the communist takeover, but also joyous. You also get a sense of a kid who has fun no matter what the circumstances. You get to see her life growing papayas in her papaya tree, um, getting snacks from the market, her brothers um, going to school and coming home, and one of her brothers trying to hatch a chick from an egg. So it's a, a vibrant and a real world. It's not just a sense that, um, unfortunately, a lot of novels that have children in really difficult circumstances, the emphasis is on, you know, is on the suffering, is on the fear, is on the environment of war. But Saigon, as presented in Inside Out and Back Again, is just as joyous as it is worried, is just as vibrant as it is a place of fear and, and growing concern. So... After she leaves Saigon, she and her family escape on a Navy ship, the Vietnamese Navy, that the South Vietnamese Navy that was, that was leaving the country as they recognized they no longer would have a South Vietnam very shortly. So the ships filled with refugees and sailed away. And so her life on the ship is very, very different. There's not enough food for everyone. There's not enough water. They're squeezed onto a tiny mat. And they don't know where they're going or when rescue will come, if it ever will come. But eventually it does. And they land in, and they end up in first a refugee camp in Guam, and then a refugee camp in Florida. And in Guam, there's this atmosphere of where will we go? There's, there's this desk, you know, there's this big looming question. What country will we go to? 
um, what's going to become of us. But at least for now, they're they're safe and secure. And you see them watching movies. So it's this interesting juxtaposition um, all through the really tense points of the novel of really difficult, looming questions paired with very, you know, mundane activities, the kinds of things that people do to keep themselves sane in difficult situations. And the kinds of joy that people can create no matter what happens. So while in the refugee camp in Guam, the family decides that they are going to go to America. And once they get to, and once they make that decision, they move to the refugee camp in Florida, where they have to try and get a sponsor because no family can leave without an American sponsoring them. So there's that, again, that big question of, will we get a sponsor? What can we do to do to get a sponsor? Eventually the mother learns that people are more likely to get sponsored if they are listed as Christians on their application. So she changes their religion just like that. And sure enough, they end up getting a sponsor. And they could do so because of the older brother in the family who had been studying engineering before they had to flee. So he gets sponsored by um, a man from Alabama who was looking for someone to train as an apprentice mechanic. And so the whole family ends up um, following this guy out to Alabama and starting a new life for themselves, enrolling in school, and Ha is very disappointed that she has to take to go through um, another grade again. And then learning to deal with learning a new language and culture. There are some really interesting and fun scenes. Um, not to spoil too much of the story for you, but the way that she describes Alabama as someone you know, who has might as well be landing on a different planet. She describes there's these green carpets in front of everyone's houses. And on one of the early moments there in Alabama, their sponsor brings them chicken. Um, he brings them fried chicken and they are all just shocked at the taste, which is so different from farm raised, you know, fresh chicken that was in the yard this morning. That Colonel's, you know, Colonel's extra crispy tastes pretty different. And while in school, Ha really struggles to try and fit in and find her place. And there are some really, really tough moments. Um, for instance, for a long time, she's you know, eating her lunch in the bathroom and afraid to, to sit with the other students who have all really segregated themselves by race. But she is the only person she can see who looks like her. She doesn't have anyone to sit with. So some really um, important talking points, I think, for a book club or a class would be to explore um, cultural differences, to explore how accepting we are of people who are different from us, and to explore the struggles of someone trying to learn English, because much of her descriptions of other people are, you know, the person with, you know, the person with the yellow hair, the, um, the pink boy who is a big antagonist for her. He's a, he's a bully in their class. 
and she calls him Pink Boy because she doesn't know his name. But to her, he's just a big pink guy. So her struggles to to communicate with other people and to understand what's going on are an important talking point to getting kids thinking about this. Also, her struggles just to feel confident again. She, while in Saigon, she was confident in who she was. She was confident in her in her smarts and her ability to get around in the world. And she's had all that ripped away because she doesn't know English. And as she's learning, she feels like she's being thrown back into kindergarten. And that feeling is important to explore as well. So to polish off this first novel, I'm also going to give you a taste of one of the poems. And this one I think is interesting to see the very first poem in the book. And it is called 1975, Year of the Cat. Today is Tet, the first day of the lunar calendar. Every Tet, we eat sugary lotus seeds and glutinous rice cakes. We wear all new clothes, even underneath. Mother warns how we act today, foretells the whole year. Everyone with smile, no matter how we feel. No one can sweep, for why sweep away hope? No one can splash water, for why splash away joy? Today, we all gain one year in age, no matter the date we were born. Tet, our New Year's, doubles as everyone's birthday. Now I am ten, learning to embroider circular stitches, to calculate fractions into percentages, to nurse my papaya tree to bear many fruits. But last night, I pouted when Mother insisted one of my brothers must rise first this morning to bless our house, because only male feet can bring luck. An old, angry knot expanded in my throat. I decided to wake before dawn and tap my big toe to the tile floor first. Not even Mother, sleeping beside me, knew. So that is who Ha is at the beginning of the book. And I think you will find that feistiness, um, no matter how her character has to change, that feistiness goes all the way through to the end. Now, both of these authors have excellent guides, um, discussion guides, and teacher's resources for these books. And both of them are going to be linked to the show notes. We are going to link to in the show notes. Um, we also are going to link to a couple of Goodreads lists. So if you're interested, if you like what you hear, if you like to hear um, stories told in verse form, there is a Goodreads list of first novels for middle grade readers. And there is also a link to a, um, a new Goodreads list, which as, at the moment has only four books on it. Um, when I could not find a list of historical fiction verse novels, I started one. So I would invite anyone who is interested to come by and add their own novels and make the list grow and vote on what's there and what you think should be included and what you think shouldn't. I would also encourage uh, anybody to come and comment on the episode at 100centuries.com. That's 100 centuries spelled out, not the numbers. Um, and talk about the period, 
about verse novels, about teaching that period to children, and whether or not you find verse novels effective. My theory is that verse novels are particularly apt for for historical fiction, especially for younger readers. Um, and my theory behind that is that, A, one, they're shorter. They are much shorter than an entire novel. And it's so it might be more, di- so it might be easier for you to get a more reluctant reader to read through. When your narrative is broken into poems instead of whole chapters, you know, it's easier to persuade someone, well, just read this poem. It will take you five seconds instead of having to read a whole chapter of many pages full of text. Another reason I think that verse novels are particularly apt is that there is a certain intimacy to poetry that I think can really bring history to life. And I would certainly appreciate your thoughts um, and questions and interactions on 100centuries.com. While not a place for interaction, it's also we can also welcome feedback on the show, ratings and reviews on iTunes or Stitcher. Also, it should now be super easy to subscribe on Android. So if you are using an Android device, um, Blueberry, our media host, has uh, made it much easier for those using Android devices to subscribe to podcasts that are hosted on Blueberry. So hopefully we get to hear from some Android readers soon. So or other Android listeners, I'm getting a little mixed up here with reader and listener talking about books, um, talking about podcasts. So that is it for this episode. We will be back. Um, Hopefully at our regularly scheduled time, we're going to have a lot more lead time now that the school year is ending, um, that we can get some episodes in the bank so that we're not recording one, releasing it, and not having another one waiting in the wings. So we're going to have, hopefully soon, a bunch waiting in the wings. So if something happens, we can still release on time. But that's it for this week. See you guys next time. This is 100 Centuries, signing off. Mm -hmm.